The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. Today one of our members, Dan Blyde, will be teaching on Luke chapter 10 on Who is My Neighbor? Let's join Dan now in his message. When I first started coming here, I was impressed by the fact that you all listened intently as Matt faithfully expounded the word. I thought this is a good sign. These people are serious about the word. So I thought I would be bold this morning and start with a little quiz so you could demonstrate your mastery of the scriptures. Ready? Question number one. In two words. What did Jesus say was the great and first commandment? Two words. Two words. Love God. Good. Okay, let's go on to another one. Then Jesus said, a second is like it. In three words, what was the second commandment? Good. Love your neighbor. Now, would it follow that if we loved God and loved our neighbor, we'd be doing all right? If that's all you did? If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you loved your neighbors yourself, God would be pleased, right? Okay, you did well on the quiz. Now, which of those two commandments, though, do you think is harder to keep? Boy, you're quick. Let me give you some reasons for that. God is perfect. My neighbor isn't. Is it harder to love someone who's perfect or harder to love someone who's not? Uh, God is invisible. My neighbor isn't. Is it easier to love somebody that's invisible or somebody that's very visible? It's harder, isn't it, to tangibly see somebody loving God than it is to, to see them tangibly loving their neighbor. So both of these commandments are important, but this morning our goal is to focus on this second one. What does it mean to love my neighbor? I hope to help you understand that, perhaps a little different way, and to encourage you to do it this week. Here are some scriptures that uh, point us in this direction. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Or, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Well, not much good, right? Or, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Okay? So we're going to focus this morning on loving that one that we can see. Who is my neighbor? Our passage is in Luke 10. Let me just read it for you so that you have it fresh before your mind. There also are notes in your bulletin if you want to jot down a few things as we go. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, 
and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and I will repay you. Uh, And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. This passage records a debate. Jewish theologians and rabbis love to debate. Some of their debates are preserved in the Mishnah and the Talmud. Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi so-and-so said that. And so here we have a debate between a lawyer. It's not our kind of lawyer. That's a guy who's an expert in the Old Testament law. Let's call him a theologian. And Jesus, a rabbi or a teacher. And it's an interesting debate. It has eight speeches marvelously structured. They fall into two precise rounds. So there's a first round in our debate, and there's a second round in our debate. In each round, there's two questions, and then there are two answers. The structure of each round is identical. Each round begins with the lawyer asking a question. Each round continues with Jesus answering by posing a question back. Then the lawyer answers Jesus' question, and then Jesus answers the lawyer's question. Okay? So you can see how very nicely it's all balanced. Each round is introduced with a description of the lawyer's motives. So we get a little glimpse into what animates him as he begins this discussion with Jesus. Round one. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Put him to the test is a little view into the lawyer's motivation. Probably suggests he hoped to show that Jesus was somehow deficient in his understanding. But he did stand up when he spoke to him. That was respectful to stand to a teacher. And he called him teacher, so that's good. He uh, asked a question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? How can I obtain eternal life? What do I need to do? So Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How do you understand the law? This was a common way that rabbis would talk back and forth to each other. What do you understand? And the lawyer responded with this great quotation. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, on another occasion, was asked what the greatest commandment are, and these are the two things that he said. I don't know where the lawyer got it. Maybe he had been listening to Jesus' teaching at other times. But it was a good answer because Jesus said, 
You're right. You've spoken well. Do this and you will live. Now, Jesus knows that we can't do all of that. Can any of us love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you done it perfectly? (laughs) Or love your neighbors yourself? But since the guy is saying, what do I need to do? Jesus continues the discussion based upon the assumptions that the guy brings to their discussion. I want to know what I need to do. Jesus says, well, here's what you need to do. Do notice the beautiful balance here. What do I need to do? What's in the law? He quotes from the law. Do this. That's called inversion. It's a delightful uh, feature of many uh, parts of the Bible. Round two. Wishing to justify himself. He asked, but who is my neighbor? We sense perhaps here a little pang of conscience. (coughs) He uh, certainly is aware of who God is and perhaps could talk a little bit about loving God. But who is this neighbor that I'm supposed to love? Perhaps if I could restrict the definition of neighbor, I could make it easier for me to do it. After all, sometimes if you can lower the steeple, you can jump over a steeple on a church. What do I need to do? Well, Jesus tells him a parable. At the end of the parable, Jesus asks him a question, like we've seen, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? The lawyer answers the question, and Jesus says, then go and do likewise. It's that answer that Jesus gives to the question that we want to focus on. Who is my neighbor? He, he does that by a parable. I hear a beep. Is that me beeping? Go. Okay, I don't need to worry about it. You have undoubtedly heard of parables. And maybe some of you, when you realize this is going to be a sermon on a parable, groaned inwardly. Because many of you have heard marvelous sermons on parables that were absolutely terrible. A parable, as you know, is a figurative history, true to life, conveying some spiritual truth, usually related to the kingdom. Two halves, the earthly story, heavenly meaning. Many of you could give me that definition, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. More specifically, a parable is a narration with a sequence of action, more than one verb. It's true to life. It's within the realm of reality. Animals don't speak in parables. They do in fables, not in parables. They're true to life. It's a fictitious rather than a historical story, although it could be real. It involves these two realms. It touches the, or teaches, pardon me, the unknown by the known. We understand from the story things about uh, unknown things. And it has a spiritual purpose, usually related to the kingdom. Now, you already knew all of that. A contemporary writer says this, a parable, the highest and most difficult prose form to write. It is a fictitious narrative, fictitious narrative, brief and simple, that conveys a profound moral or spiritual truth. It must have a literally transparent surface. The facts it uses are a familiar, very plausible occurrence, but it is the transparency over depths, and therein lies the hardness of the form for the artist to accomplish. Utter simplicity, brevity, perennial freshness of substance, these constitute the miracle of the parable. Proof of its hardness to achieve, says this scholar. No modern writer 
as showing the capacity to write a parable. Isn't that interesting? It is so difficult to do that no modern writer can do it. Moderns can allegorize, but the parable is beyond their powers. And what do we find with Jesus? He's walking down the road, somebody asks a question, and out comes a parable, right? Something else has been occurring, and he says, let me tell you a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. So what we can't do, he did routinely. Now, I said some of you groan at parables because of this. You've heard sermons on parables where you went out afterwards and you said, wow, there was stuff in that parable that I never knew was there. And the reason you never knew it was there is because it's not there. I know. Yeah, parables, unfortunately, have become a kind of happy hunting ground for preachers that would like to demonstrate their creativity. Okay? For example, our parable that I just read to you. One great scholar in church history says, well, here's what the parable means. The man who's going down, that's Adam. Jerusalem is paradise. And Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers. The priest is the law. The Levite is the prophets. The Samaritan is Christ. The wounds are disobedience. The beast is the Lord's body. The inn, which accepts all who wish to enter, is the church. Get ready for this. The manager of the inn is the head of the church to whom the care has been entrusted. And I can't read that, but anyway... The Samaritan is coming back and Jesus is going to come back. Now that is not what this parable teaches, in spite of the fact that St. Augustine said this is what it means. Parables do not teach a hundred things. They generally teach one thing. Okay? Now I'm going to give you permission for the next minute and a half to two to zone out if you'd like. I have to do this. You may not want to go with me. But come back, will you? Okay. I want to explain to you how you interpret a parable. I put these notes in your bulletin. If you look on the inside of the back page, you'll not only see the steps, you'll also see a little delightful assignment for you this week. So you can work on it every day. I'm then going to show you how I apply this to this parable as we seek to understand who's my neighbor And what does it mean to love them? When you come to a parable, first you want to try and understand the original setting. Makes sense, right? Who's talking to who and where is all this happening? Then you want to identify the problem. Put a big star by that one. Every parable is told to answer a question or to respond to a problem. Sometimes the problem is really clear. The question is easy. I'll let you demonstrate that in a minute. Other times it's harder. But there's some kind of a question or an issue hanging in the air that Jesus then tells a parable to answer. You need to identify this problem. Third, clarify the principal elements. You're not really ready to tackle a parable to tell the story, getting all the details. But they're not very long stories, so it's not that hard. Fourth, seek the central truth. Number four should get a star as well. The central truth is the answer to the question. So there's a question hanging. The central teaching of the parable answers that question or responds to that problem. Fifth, uh, relate the details to the central truth, and I'll illustrate how I do that in this parable. 
And then lastly, this gets a star to discover and respond to the appeal. Jesus didn't just tell the parables so that you'd say, hmm, that was kind of an interesting story. He told them so that you would do something. And so we're going to see this morning, he not only wants to teach us something, he wants us to do something. So let's work through our parable now. And I'll use those steps to try and illustrate how I come at this. First of all, the circumstances. I already described this. It's a debate between Jesus and a lawyer. Jesus has just begun his great final teaching tour on his way to Jerusalem to die. As he is traveling, people interact with him, and that's where this lawyer comes into play. Now, are you ready to shine? Parables are told to solve a problem or to answer a question. If the problem is not known, the solution may not be recognized. What is the question that this parable is told to answer? Who is my good? Who is my neighbor? So the central teaching of the parable is going to be the answer to that question, right? Who's my neighbor? I know this all seems rather obvious at this point. The basic elements. What's the story? Let's review. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know anything about the man. Probably Jewish. Certainly Jesus... uh, Listeners would have thought so. We don't know what his occupation was or why he was going that way. But he was going down. You can see on this map here, the upper right-hand corner would be where the Sea of Galilee is. Lower left-hand corner, the Dead Sea. And you can see in in the crust of the earth, there is a great gash, a rift, as it were, cut into the very surface of the earth. And uh, it goes lower and lower and lower as the Jordan River runs down uh, to the Dead Sea. Let me show it to you on this slide. So that we finally at the Dead Sea end up at 1,200 feet below sea level. It is the lowest place you can go on the face of the earth. Okay, 1,200 feet below sea level. Well, you can see that uh, Jerusalem is up about uh, 2,500 feet. Jericho, which is on the uh, the, uh, coast, of the Dead Sea, near where the Jordan River dumps into it, uh, is way down there at the bottom. So when it says he was going down, he was going down. 3,300 feet in elevation, a 17-mile road. And it was not a paved road. It was a rough area. This was called the Path of Blood. Because it was such a convenient place, if you were a robber, to get some business. How would you like to go down there? 17 miles. Downhill, 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 the whole way. Even as recently as the 1800s, groups of tourists who traveled there would have armed escorts to go down. In 1857, there was a group of Christians who were on a a Holy Land tour, and they hired a Turkish brigade to take them down this path. One of them fell behind the group, and robbers jumped out and robbed them and beat them. 1857. So it has a long history of being a really nice place if you're a robber. And there were robbers this day. By the way, halfway, I understand today, from Jericho to uh, Jerusalem 
is an inn called the Good Samaritan Inn. (laughs) So that's an improvement over what it was in those days. Well, this man got beaten. Apparently he resisted. And so they thrashed him pretty good. He left him half dead. And uh, they stole his clothes as well. So there he is, naked, bruised, beaten, unconscious, laying on the road. By chance, a priest was going down that road. Priests were some of the most respected people in that culture. This was a man who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. This guy was in the helping professions. Because he was a priest, we know he was not walking. Too important. Important people did not walk 17 miles. They rode. He came to the place and he passed by. Jesus just tells us what he did. He doesn't tell us why. But we've speculated. Perhaps he was thinking about being ceremonially clean for his job. If he touched a dead body, he would be ceremonially unclean. He couldn't do his work. In fact, he couldn't come within six feet of a dead body. So maybe he was thinking, that guy might be dead. If I go over there, I'm going to mess up my ministry. Perhaps he was thinking, maybe that guy's not Jewish. If I touch anybody who's not a Jew, I'm ceremonially unclean. Why can't he just go over and ask the guy if he's Jewish? Because the guy's knocked out. Why can't he tell by how he's dressed? Because they stole all his clothes. So he has no idea who that guy is. So he continues on down. Now Jesus doesn't tell us why. He just tells us he passed by. He was followed by a Levite. The Levites were assistants to the priests. So they helped with the teaching of the people and so on. Uh, They were in charge of worship. And so he's following along. He at least comes over and looks and then goes. Again, we're left to ask why. Was he worried about being ceremonially unclean? At least I'm pretty sure he knew that that priest was ahead of him on the road. And if the priest passed by, then who am I, right? Or maybe he thought, you know, there's a reason that guy's laying in a heap over there. That's because there are robbers around here. Maybe they're still around. Maybe they'll jump out and pounce on me. I don't know, but we can make all kinds of rationalizations for why they didn't stop. The point is, they didn't. Now, it may interest you to know that a certain theological professor at a seminary back on the East Coast, it shall remain unnamed, decided to use this as part of his instructional uh, approach for his students. He announced that their final exam was going to be a one-on-one oral exam with him in his office. However, there were special instructions for them. There were going to be staggered appointments, and they had to go to his secretary's office, which was in another building, and go and report there on time He would call her when he was ready for them to come because he wasn't sure how long the different tests would take. So the first guy came, went uh, reported to the secretary. The call came, and he was told, now you go over to the other building where the professor's office is, and he'll give you the oral. 
the student stepped out the door and began to walk across the campus, and he came across a guy that had just been mugged. Now, the secretary had told him not to waste any time getting over to the professor because he's waiting for you. So he had a choice to make, didn't he? The second student reported, meanwhile, to the secretary. The phone call came, and he went out to go across. And wouldn't you know, he came out, and there was a guy that had just been mugged. And the third guy, the same. In fact, there was an actor who was pretending to be mugged for every one of them. How many students... Differently. Do you think most of the students... No, let me say it differently. How many of you feel like most of the students undoubtedly stopped to help the guy that had been mugged? Okay, some of you are optimists. Yeah. <laughs> Only two. Oh, you say, that's terrible. And these guys are studying to be pastors? Well, what would you have done? On your way to your final, don't be late. Well, there's a third guy coming down the road. And as soon as it was aware, uh, became apparent to the audience that there was going to be a third one, I imagine some of them were thinking, you know what it's going to be? I bet it's going to be just an average Joe. A layman like us. Won't that be great? He'll stop and help when those religious uppity-ups won't. And there was a third guy and he did stop. But it wasn't an average Joe. He was a Samaritan. He needed to know that the Samaritans and the Jewish people didn't like each other. Samaritans were part Jew, part Gentile. They had set up their own worship in Samaria. In Jewish synagogues, every day they prayed, may no Samaritan partake of eternal life. That kind of give you the flavor of how relations were between them? And so when Jesus says, a Samaritan stop, this would have been shocking to his, his audience. Are you kidding me? And he stopped. He saw the same guy that the priest and the Levite had seen, but he acted differently, didn't he? Oil and wine was sort of like your first aid kit in that day. You would take the oil and soothe it, cleanse wounds, and then the wine was the disinfectant. Sound great? And then he bound him up. Now, could he have used some of his clothes to make the bandages with? No, all of his clothes were taken. So where did he get the clothes to make the bandages out of? Do you suppose he tore his own robe? And he's not done yet. He set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn. Now, perhaps he did it like the picture suggests here. Perhaps the fellow was able to lay across it and he led the horse. Now, you need to understand that if he's leading the animal, one of the lowest things that could happen to you was have to lead the horse for somebody else that's riding on top of it. So that the Samaritan has ad adopted a very humble role here. But there's something else you need to know. Think with me for a second. He was courageous to have stopped and helped. The robbers could still be around. 
But I think he was more courageous to go riding into town as a Samaritan, bringing a beat-up, probably Jewish, man. Let me give you an analogy to see if it helps. Suppose in the days of the American West that an Indian brave came across a cavalry, cavalry officer that had been scalped and left for dead. And he ministered to him, picked him up on his horse, and rode into Dodge City with him. Do you think there would be any questions? Oh, where did you find him? How is it that you happen to be... And what if he rented a room above the saloon and stayed with him all night ministering to him and the next day got ready to leave and paid? Oh, where did you get the money to pay with? Out of his pockets? Do you think he'd get out of town alive? took a lot of courage, I think, to go in with all of these suspicions that might have been addressed to the Samaritan. He took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you. It appears this guy had traveled the road before. He knew the innkeeper. Innkeeper knew him and apparently trusted him. So if I need to spend more, let me know when I come next time. Well, with the problem in mind, the central truth will usually stand out. Are you ready? Almost always apparent, obvious, rather than mystical or hidden. Jesus asks a question of the lawyer. But do you notice how he reshapes the question? The lawyer's question was, who's my neighbor? Jesus' question is, which one of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The lawyer's question focused on who would be the recipient of the love. Jesus' question focused on who would be the dispenser of the love. It's not who gets, it's who gives. The lawyer had to answer, but he didn't want to say that word Samaritan, and so he said, well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So, the definition of my neighbor is what? Jesus told the story to answer the question. Who is my neighbor? I think the answer is my neighbor is anybody that I meet that has a need. Does that make sense? The emphasis is not on them, it's on Anybody I meet that I can show mercy to. Anybody that I can show love to. That makes sense? Now, some of you are being wary, and you need to be, because you know where I'm going to go with this, but just to hang loose with. Now, as I mentioned going through the details. Let me just show you what I did with this parable here. Here are the uh, details. Some of them, I'm arguing, are essential to the story and to the point Others of them are included as drapery to give realism to the story. Here's how I did it. Jerusalem to Jericho, I don't think that's essential. It could have been Los Angeles to Temecula. Okay? The guy was on a journey and he got beaten up. But where the journey started and ended is part of the drapery, I think. But that he fell among robbers is important. 
We need to have them get beat up. We also have to have a couple of folks come by that don't help. The fact that they're a priest and a Levite adds a little flavor to it, doesn't it? Because those are religious guys. Certainly we need the Samaritan, somebody to come and help, and an unlikely guy in this case. The wounds, the beast, the inn, the innkeeper, and the two denarii, I think, are just drapery. Okay? So just some of the things are essential. But in light of the parable, what were the listeners to think and what were they to do? How does this relate to us today? Go and do likewise. So if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, loving your neighbor is something that you should do, right? Go and do likewise. So who is the neighbor that God wants me to love? Now, sometimes the need for love or mercy takes different forms. Sometimes we come across someone that needs us to be a neighbor to them, and we don't see it. I want to try and help you see it in these next few minutes. I was at a McDonald's. And uh, I was doing my business in the men's room. And a fellow came in and stood at the urinal next to me. And just talking to the air, he said, You know, I sure am hungry. Is he my neighbor? Well, did I encounter him and does he have a need? Yeah. So I said, after we both finished our business, I'd be happy to buy you a Big Mac or something. What would you like? And he said, oh, I don't like the food here. Can you just give me the money? (laughs) I was willing. Because Jesus said, give to everyone who begs of you. Give to everyone who asks of you. Matthew 5.42. Now, he doesn't tell us to give them what they ask. Okay? But if they ask, we have a responsibility to respond. Okay? Another example. When you drive on the freeway, frequently at the end of a off-ramp, you have a person standing with a hand-lettered cardboard sign, right? Have you seen them? Will work for food, hungry, vet, God bless you, please help, etc. Now, how many of you would like to do that? That would be on your bucket list of things. You'd like to stand there at the end. Oh, that's not what you meant, huh? Well, it used to trouble me because I would drive up the exit ramp and there they'd be standing and I'd look the other way and go on. But is that guy my neighbor? I met someone who has a need. Is that my neighbor? So here's what I do. My my niece suggested this. So behind my front seat, I have some prepared food in cans. Right now, it's pork and beans. And so when I see them, I reach in the back, and I pull up, and I roll down my window, and I smile, and I say, God loves you, or 
Jesus said to give this to you or something like that. It's so much fun. I look for them now. I've had people say, no thanks, do you have money? No. I need to give to everyone who asks me, but I don't have to give what they're asking for, right? might be the worst thing I could do to give them money. For many years I worked as a, a, a supervisor in a manufacturing company. And one of the fellows that we had there, I'm going to call him Fellows, uh, was a happy-go-lucky worker. I remember one time he came to me and he said, You know, Dan, if, if you paid me more money, I would work harder and be more productive. And I said, You know, if you worked harder and were more productive, it's likely you'd get paid more money, right? <laughs> well, anyway, when, when the 9-11 attacks happened, as you remember, that sent a shudder through our whole country. And our business died. One week. Two weeks. And you can't have 40 workers and nothing to do. And so for the first time in the 40-year history of the company, we had to lay off employees, which is no fun to do. But one of the employees that got laid off was Fellows. Fellows wasn't happy because he had a brother-in-law working there and he wasn't laid off. We heard rumors that Fellows was parking down the street when the guys got off work and that he had a gun in his car. Our plant manager decided to get a gun in the office at that point. A few days later, Fellows' wife called me at the office and she said, we need to come and talk to you, can we come? And I said, well, sure, of course you can come. Well, I can't come now, I, I, I'm a manager at a big boy. No, not a big boy. Jacks. Uh, can we come tonight? So I said, sure. So they came at 7 o'clock to the plant. And they came in. Uh, fellows was looking down at the, the ground, just obviously in stress. And his wife said, uh, you know, Fellows has really been struggling since he got laid off. Um, the other night he took a gun. And he put it up his throat. And then fellows interrupted. And I would have pulled the trigger, except I didn't want to miss my little boy. This fellow's my neighbor. Used to be an employee. Now he's my neighbor. We got help for fellows. Sometime later he called me on top of the world. I'm now the supervisor of the floor crew at a big box store. And I get to work all night and we clean up the floors for the next day. Walmart or one of those places. And he was thrilled. Take John. John's a corporate executive. Was sent to a city that he'd not been at before uh, to go to some meetings. Corporate travel made the arrangements and when he arrived... They had put him in a hotel that was pretty near where the meetings would be. But unbeknownst to them, they'd put him in an area frequented by men looking for anonymous sex with other men. John settled into his hotel room and then went out to get a bite of dinner. And as he was walking along the street, 
he was propositioned by another man. Is that man John's neighbor? Stay with me. John is a strong teddy bear of a guy. Didn't run. Didn't turn away. Instead, he leaned in and gave the guy a big, firm, loving bear hug and spoke quietly in his ear. I'm not here to have sex with you. I know what you're really looking for, and that's not it. If you're willing, I'd love to go grab a coffee with you and just talk. The man started weeping in John's arms. A few minutes later, they sat across from each other at a nearby diner. Yeah, sometimes the neighbors need not so apparent, huh? Here's an easy one for you. At the house where you live, are there any other neighbors that live there with you? What I mean is, are there any people in that house that occasionally have needs? Do you mean I have to love my neighbors in my house too, like my brother or my... Yes. And so here's an exercise at lunch you could talk about as a family. When was the last time that you had a need and nobody else in the family showed mercy to you? That'd have an interesting conversation, wouldn't it? Well, one more. Hope you're getting a picture of what it means to love your neighbor. This is Mark's account. Bad luck. The light turned red and I was trapped standing at the corner. I prayed for it to change quickly. Can I have something for my file, mister? He asked. This one was a crazy, no doubt about it. A grimy box under his arm gave him away immediately. Crazies always carry something, usually a shopping bag with handles. They can be unstable, but this guy looked pretty safe. Sorry, no money. I repeated the old lie so often it came out automatically. I half expected to hear myself say, this is a recording, please shove off and don't try again. Have you got anything for my file? He repeated. Slowly the message sank through. I fished in my pocket, pulled out a brochure and handed it to him. No, he shouted. Then almost pathetically he finished, I don't have a file for that. I took it back and turned away. Come on, light, change. I stepped over the curb to look for a break in traffic. I'm Howard, he said. What's your name? Mark. One syllable was all the information I intended to give. I had no desire to have some crazy calling me all the time. I knew people that had to change their telephone number to stop the calls. I liked my number. I chanced a quick look to see what he was doing. He had a pencil in one hand and was stooping to pick up a piece of paper. Just then the light changed and I took off. Halfway down the block, I slowed down and looked back. The crazy had just closed his box and begun to look around for a new victim. Was Howard Mark's neighbor? A few days later, I was walking the same route when I noticed an ambulance parked outside a dingy area. I joined the crowd of onlookers to see what had happened. Two attendants in white jackets wheeled their stretcher out of the alley. It was the crazy. His face was showing, so I knew he wasn't dead. But as the attendants shut the door, I could tell by their conversation that he wouldn't stay uncovered for long. A policeman questioned some of the people in the crowd, but received no answers. Nobody seemed to care that much, not even the cop. 
It was just a little added excitement on an otherwise dull day. The cop raised his voice and asked, uh, anybody here know this guy? Nobody answered. Finally, I volunteered. His name is Howard. The people around me backed away, as if my knowing the crazy's name made me a crazy too. The cop came over and began to pump me for more information. His name is Howard. That's all I know, sir. Well, at least there'll be a name for the headstone. Thank you for your help. Oh, by the way, would you take this for me? He reached down and picked up the crazy's box. You've done more for him than anyone else, and I don't want to fill out all the paperwork for a box of garbage. He shoved the box into my hands and walked away before I could say anything. Why would I want some guy's garbage, I thought. I looked around for a trash can, but I knew I couldn't just toss the box. Maybe it was the stories of misers who had thousands of dollars yet lived like bums. Or perhaps even a slightly misguided sense of loyalty to the human race. Whatever it was, I opened the box. I was disappointed. I saw nothing but old clothes in one file folder. No wonder this guy didn't have a file for my brochure. I guess even crazies are into specialization. I pulled out the file and dumped the rest of the stuff. Then I noticed the crude printing on the tab of the folder. Friends. I opened it and looked inside. It held only one small scrap of paper. On it was written, Mark. Who is your Howard? Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.